going to be in John 12 today. So grab your Bibles, flip to John 12. If you don't have a Bible, down the middle column of seats are a couple of Bibles on, stacked underneath the seat. Uh, you can grab that, follow along with this. I think it'll be around page 597, John chapter 12. We got a long passage of scripture. We're going to finish this chapter today. So verse 12 through 50 will be our text for today. As you're turning, let me just introduce... Uh, this because I'm a lot of words and we're going to be covering a lot of ground today. I, I said this last week, John chapter 12 is the turning point in this in this gospel. It's the turning point in the narrative, uh, firstly, because it's the halfway, you know, it's 21 chapters, but it's the halfway point. But more importantly, it's the it's the turning point because of what happens here in John chapter 12. As we enter the text, the Jews are celebrating. They're having this huge celebration, the, the Passover. The Passover is one of three feasts um, for which the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. And so if you lived within 20 miles or so of Jerusalem, you and your family, primarily the males, though, would come and migrate to Jerusalem to celebrate this this particular feast. They were traveling near and far. And to put it in our cultural terms, think of all the cities in America that host just huge events that, you know, the, the, the whole country comes to, that the world comes to. The, the Mardi Gras, Indianapolis 500, uh, Super Bowls, the, the cities that are able to support that, Kentucky Derby, those cities that are uh, favored enough to, to host the Olympics. Uh, of course, here in D.C., the, the event every four years that happens that the whole world comes to, the inauguration of a president. So this, I mean, gobs and gobs of people would have come to Jerusalem for this feast of the Passover. And Josephus, who's an ancient writer in the in the first and second century that lived right immediately after the, the apostles died, says that in his day, uh, Jerusalem, which was a city of only about 50,000 people, would swell to like hundreds of thousands, perhaps even two two to three million people during this time. And so really the whole world is showing up, going to the temple, and they've got one thing on their mind. And guess what they're, Guess what? this one thing in their mind is in this particular time? It's, I mean, they're looking, they're looking for Jesus. This is what chapter 11, the end of chapter 11 says. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, uh, what do you think? Um, is he going to show up at the feast at all? Verse 57 continues. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And so as we as you're thinking about what's going we're going to read the passage in a second. But as you're as you're receiving the words that are going on in this passage, um, you should get the sense this is a tense moment. OK, it's not just the festival and the the, the solemnity that goes on as they think about Jesus atoning for their sins um, during the, the atonement. Um, really, uh, Jesus is entering this environment and he's sandwiched between a whole bunch of people that are raising their hands, shouting out great words and they want to praise him. But on the other end of that sandwich are those that want to take his life. I mean, they want to kill him. One of the other things that we've heard in John all along is this phrase at certain times. He'd say, my hour has not yet come. Uh, the, it's not the, the time for the, the Son of Man to be glorified. And usually that phrase came in the midst of Jesus teaching something, doing some great miracle, and, and that, that tension happening. Those who received him and then those who, who didn't like him and possibly even wanted to kill him. 
in this particular passage, uh, Jesus doesn't do what he did before. In those other instances, he hid from the crowd. He he ran. He went and did something else other than stay where he was to avoid what they were trying to do to him. But here in this text, we'll see that he heads right into the middle of all this mess. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. Um, he goes to the very place where all those this this tension of people who love him and hate him at the same time are waiting for him. Um, so chapter 12, uh, we're going to do something different. Uh, I'm only going to read five verses of this whole text just to save us time, but also for emphasis. So turn your Bible set to verse 23, chapter 12, verse 23. We're going to read these five verses out loud together, and then uh, we'll back up and start at chapter 12 as we go through the text. Uh, let's read together. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this point. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause in the, the reading and the hearing of your word to, to say thank you that your word goes forth and that it does not return void, that it does all that you accomplish for it to do. And as we reach this turning point in the narrative of John, I pray that all that we've talked about and discussed and really mold our minds over in regards to this, this gospel of John, him, him encouraging us to believe that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of God, and that uh, by believing in him, we might have life in his name. God, that some of that would just leak from our head into our heart. Lord, we're praying uh, for eyes to, to see in your word, for ears to hear by your spirit what you would have for us in this text and in the days ahead as we walk this out. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So John's gospel is divided into two halves. The first 11 chapters really is, is all of Jesus' public, public life. Um, the, the things that he said, the miracles that he did, the encounters that he had with, with people that we've been introduced in the Gospel of John. And then the final 10 chapters, starting in chapter 12, are devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. And so we have entered really the last seven days of his life. Uh, when we enter the, the text in, in verse 12, that will be six days left. As chapter 12 starts in verse 1, um, really it's, it's looking at this, the seven days as he was fellowshipping with, uh, with Mary, Martha, and, uh, and Lazarus. Chapter 12 is the obvious turning point here uh, because Jesus makes this significant statement, the hour has come. Uh, that's the overarching theme of John 12, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus says that phrase or some rendition of it three other times in, in the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 6, uh, 
in, in all the previous times where he said this, he, of course, was speaking of some other, some future event, the, the, the day, the time, the hour that he would be glorified. That is his imminent death. When he says it this time, he, he sort of changes the words up. He, he says, now is not the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in this instance, he says, this is it. Now is the time. My death is, is imminent. And so John's method really has been throughout all this gospel to introduce us to a whole bunch of different people, um, people that walked walks of life. And some of them, um, as they met Jesus, uh, were sent on a, a different trajectory. Think about all the people that we've met in the in the gospel of John. We met the, uh, the royal official whose son was ill and Jesus just said a word and, and healed his son from afar. You had the. Uh, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who was in a, a, a multi-adulterous relationship. And Jesus came and um, presented uh, the, the, the gospel of salvation to her and changed the direction of her life. So much so that she went back to her home village and, and got others to believe in Jesus. You had the, the invalid, the paralytic that was laying by this pool of water and just laid there for 38 whole years. Fast forward and you, you have other characters uh, ending up with uh, with Lazarus, the guy that the friend of Jesus that he raised from the grave. So John has given us all these individual people and encounters with them and how they responded to Jesus and his message. What John does in chapter 12 as Jesus ends his public ministry is not focused on the individual. He focuses on four groups of people. And that's sort of that's going to be really the the framework that we look at as we press through the end of chapter 12. The first group we already met. We already talked about them last week. That was Jesus friends, Mary, Martha, uh, Lazarus, his friend that he raised from the grave in, in verses one through 11. And so the occasion was Jesus had gone to Bethany. He went there because Lazarus was sick. Lazarus ends up dying. Jesus comes, raises him to life. And so uh, in the ensuing days, they have a dinner party. It's a Sabbath party. They're celebrating Jesus and his miracle working power. But more so, they're celebrating Lazarus, their friend who had died, who's been raised from the grave. And in this encounter, really, the focal point is Mary. And what Mary does is Mary takes an, an inestimable, inestimable uh, how do you say that word? A, a pint of nard, that word I love saying, very expensive ointment, and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And in the most intimate of demonstrations of her love and devotion, she takes her hair, her glory, and wipes his feet with her hair. And we learn from that that although it looks like um, Mary is, is, is just worshiping Jesus, more than that, she's preparing him for his burial. The day after Jesus gets up with his friends, goes to Jerusalem and he goes right to the temple. And that's where we end up. That's where we come to in in verse 12. So verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so we don't live in this culture, but this is the context. This would have been a reception fit for a king. This is like um, 
whoever your greatest sports team is and what you know one of the big cities of America and they're having a ticker tape parade streets are lined with hundreds of thousands of people there's bands and parades and banners and trumpets blowing all that stuff is happening not you know that's they didn't have all that in this culture but it's it's likened to that this would have been a big deal and one of the things that John points to is they're shouting the name of Jesus they are, they're laying down palm branches, which seems strange to us, but really it, it was a sign of Jewish nationalism. See, these Jews had been um, overthrown by nation after foreign nation, and at this present time, they are oppressed by the Romans. And so uh, backing up 150 years prior to Jesus even being born, um, there was a Maccabean revolt. There's a family called the, the Maccabees, okay? And they, uh, under the guise of their father, uh, amassed uh, uh, an army and overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. And as a result of that, they had one of these celebrations, a ticker tape parade. They were celebrating the victory they had over an oppressive foreign nation. And so much so, they, they made the palm branch a symbol of their victory. They, they, they uh, created their own coinage, and this, this, this palm was a sign of Jews and their nationalism. And so this is what's going on. They were they were seeing Jesus coming in and they were about to worship him as the one who they thought were going to be their king. The the semblance of this is that the Jews were welcoming their king. No doubt they thought Jesus was he's the Messiah. He's the divine one. He is the the one in the writings, the Old Testament scripture that's going to deliver us from all the oppression that we've been under for years and years and years and years. Jesus is this warrior king that's going to help us overthrow the very world and be all that we're supposed to be. This idea is reinforced when they when they start yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna means save us. And so they were likening Jesus to someone like none other that they had been waiting for years for. Uh, it really an over delayed response of someone who was going to come in and rescue them from all the things that they had been suffering. You know, these these words, Hosanna, uh, it comes from Psalm 118. Th- these words that they were saying, Hosanna, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It's it's a repetition from Psalm 118. This would have been this would have been like Jewish mantra. Every feast that came about, they would have said these words so much so that it was automatic for them during a feast, especially the Passover, to say these words. Only this time, they actually meant it. They meant it toward Jesus because they thought he was the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. Hosanna, Jesus, save us. But that's when the, 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 the picture sort of changes. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it's written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In the ancient Near East, uh, a warrior king, after he had gained a victory in war, would come back and through a procession like they're offering towards Jesus, would, uh, would come, his, his army is in tow, and he'd be riding on a horse. Jesus does something different. Jesus sits on a donkey, and that has uh, prophetic semblance. We learn about that in Zechariah. Zechariah 9 says this, and Jesus, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah prophesied exactly what the Messiah would look like. This deliverer that Israel should be looking for. It says that he'll be a righteous king. It says that he would be he would bring salvation with him, that he would be humble and he would be mounted on a donkey. And the, the, the donkey reference here symbolizes that he would come not as a warrior with an army and, you know, coming to open up a candle. You know what? He, he's coming to bring peace. And you would think that the knowing all they've known about Jesus at this point, that they would know he would he he perfectly fulfilled this. He perfectly fit this description. Yet somehow they missed it. Uh, here's the big issue here. This was not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted the warrior on a horse. They wanted the one that was going to come in and say, hey, all right, guys, let's get the army together. Uh, I am your king. I, I, I receive you as my subjects. Uh, let's. In fact, all the people who have been against me, Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, let's go ahead and get rid of them first because they've been in my way and they're going to they're going to. Uh, impede on the things that we're going to do as we're going to take out the Romans. That's the kind of warrior king they wanted. Instead, they got Jesus. The kind of Messiah they sought was directly contrary to the Savior that God had promised to send. And how do we know that? We know that because this same crowd that's got their hands raised, they're putting down palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, save me, Jesus. Only a three or four days later, standing before Pilate would yell, crucify him. They would say, give us Barabbas instead of giving us Jesus, our king. Here's the issue. We do this, too. Have you ever have you ever had a you're really looking forward to you, probably young kids. There's not a lot of young kids in here. Think back to when you were young. Say you wanted something really bad for your birthday and you told your parents and your family, this is what I want for my birthday. And you got a whole bunch of presents on the on the on the table. Everybody you got a cake. They're singing happy birthday to you. And you tear into your presents. And that thing that you wanted, you don't get it. In fact, you get something else. And it's not that you don't want. I mean, it's it, you don't get what you want it for. You got something, but you don't get what you want it. This is this is how it is for the for the Jews here. They got a king. He was the true king. He was just not the king they wanted. We're in a presidential season. We had the second of the Republican debate. I was going to call it debacle. We had a, the, the second, I mean, three-hour debate. And I'm looking at this, you know, I, I'm not trying to tell you what political party I support, but I did watch the debate. So um, I'm looking at these candidates, you know, and we do this. We try to say, who, who is it that I would want to lead me? Who do I think is qualified and has the character to lead our country and set us in, you know, the, the right direction? And then, you know, at the same time, I'm praying, Lord, don't give us what we don't give us what we want. Give us what we need. It's, it's one of those things. G- God has sent Jesus, the person the, the king they needed. And they said, it's not what we want. This crowd of pilgrims, all these different people that had come, the thousands and hundreds, possibly even millions of people at the Passover. This is the second group of people that John introduces us to. And there are three different subgroups among them. Let's read verses 16 through 19. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things uh, had been written about him and had been done before him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so uh, John comments on three different types of people that had come, you know, Passover pilgrims, people coming because it's time to work to to come to the Passover feast, but also because they wanted to see Jesus. The first are uh, his closest disciples in verse 16. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing about these disciples. Um, I, I find the fact that they are ignorant of what Jesus is doing hard to believe. Think about, I mean, these are the ones that had been closest to him, had seen all the miracles, had heard his words, had leaned up against him as they're re- relaxing, um, eating dinner together, and they still didn't catch on to all that was going on, especially when he came into Jerusalem, because they would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. In verse 17, uh, the second group of people uh, are the local people who had, those who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus. And I would tell you, these are, these are just onlookers. These are people who... Um, they came for the spectacle. It's like you're, you're on 95 and traffic all of a sudden comes to a halt and you're creeping along for like 15 minutes. And then you get to the spot that that caused the, the, the pause. And it's and it's like one car, a, a, a worker, a worker of some sort. He's got four little cones off to the side and the lanes aren't even blocked. It's like, is that why we slowed down for that little thing right there? And so these people, it, it's like that. You got people who they just want to see what's going on. They're thinking, all right, well, look, check it out. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. I want to see what he looks like. More than that, if he raised Lazarus from the dead, if I can just get close to Jesus, think about what he might be able to do for me. These are the kind of people that want to receive the blessings of God without embracing the true purpose of his saving grace. And then thirdly, you got in verse 19, you got religious people, primarily the Pharisees. And the thing about the Pharisees They were worried about what Jesus was going to do because they didn't want Jesus to influence this crowd any more than he already had. And they knew at some point we're going to grab him. We're going to fake uh, fake put him through trial and then we're going to kill him. What should we gather from uh, from this crowd of people, this 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 second group of people that come to the Passover? I think this is appropriate. This is the lesson we should take away. Whatever we look to for salvation will be our, our king. Whatever we look to for salvation will be the king of our lives. This is what I mean by that. The issue with all three of these groups of people, these Passover pilgrims, and I would include Jesus' disciples in this, is they're trying to move Jesus forward on their own agenda. They want cake and ice cream. Jesus isn't the one that they want. He's the one they need, and they're trying to change him into who they who they want. They're trying to move Jesus forward on their own agenda. But here's the thing. We do this, too. Uh, I think about my own prayers. You know, I got my list of prayers, things I want to pray for. And it's like, Lord, I, I need you to do this right here. And, you know, bless that person. Uh, I'm having some difficulties here and I need you to really I, I need to hear from you today on this issue. And then I say, in Jesus name, amen. And what I've done with that is I've 
humbly submitted my list of things that Jesus needs to do in my life. And I've said, Lord, bless me. And I haven't given any credence to. All right, Lord. So what do you want me to do? What 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 is it that you would have for me? We do the same thing with politics. We, we say that Jesus has a political party, that Jesus votes a certain way. We do it with music. We say Jesus has a certain amount, certain kind of music that he likes and it's not country. I'm just kidding. It might not be hip hop. Whatever, whatever I like, Jesus likes. Whatever I don't like, Jesus doesn't like. Because Jesus is on my agenda. Jesus likes and does whatever my favorite things are. He would never be for things that I'm against. He's always in agreement with me. And I would tell you, this is how we make Jesus king on our own terms. The third group are the Greeks. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Um, so Greeks here means non-Jews, uh, an ethnicity, uh, a nationality of any sort. They likely were people curious about Judaism. They may have been uh, Gentiles who just wanted to see Jesus. It might have been God-fearers. A God-fearer was a non-Jew who, who completely took on the Jewish culture, laws and all, and really, although they weren't Jews, basically made themselves into a Jew. So all these it, it could have been all these people, types of people coming, coming to Jesus, asking for his time. Um, I think this is an interesting conversation, firstly, because anytime you see Andrew, we don't know a lot about Andrew. He, we, he, he isn't even given any words in the Bible. But every time you see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus, which is pretty cool. We need to be like Andrew. But here's the interesting part about this conversation. G, uh, these people are coming and asking to speak to Jesus. And then here's his answer in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And he goes on a little bit. We'll get those get those verses in a second. I'd be like, what? I mean, I just I just want to talk to Jesus. Uh, does Jesus want to talk to me? Because that doesn't sound like he's he's talk, you talking to me. This sounds cryptic and almost makes us think that Jesus does not want to talk to them. But but here's what's going on. Jesus says these very significant words. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And I said and as I said uh, moments ago, all the previous times that Jesus has said this, he's always said that this is not the time. The hour has not come. And he's always pointing to some future event where uh, where it would be imminent. But it's not quite that time yet. And so in the midst of these these non-Jews coming to him, something happens. Something happens such that Jesus would say, now's the time. So what's going on? Jesus was sent by God to gather the nation of Israel, but his message was ultimately intended for the whole world. And so these these non-Jews, these Greeks from wherever coming to Jesus was it was the event. It was the, the arrival of these Greeks seeking Jesus was evidence that his mission was now spreading. Here's what Peter says in Acts 15. He said, God would visit the Gentiles and take from them a people for his name. And so what's happening in this in this moment where Jesus says the hour has come is it, it really is happening. Jesus is becoming not just the king of the Jews. He's becoming the king 
of the whole world. The whole world, non-Jews, are coming to him, seeking him, not because he can do things, but seeking him because they're seeking salvation. Now, the, the, the sub-theme of this, of this passage, this, this section of our text, is the glory of God. And I, I really, I wrote two sermons this week. The first one was, was all about glory. And so this is a really significant section of, of what Jesus is talking about as he relates his own coming, the, the time of his coming being at hand. Here's the idea of glory. It's something that carries weight. In fact, the word glory means weight. It's something that has value. It has an element of great importance or transcendence. If you've ever been on a ship in the middle of the ocean, just looked out. I mean, think about the the vastness of the oceans that God has created. Uh, a friend of ours uh, moved, a military family moved from here to Fort Lewis, and they put a, a picture up on uh, Facebook. It was of Mount Rainier. And I saw the picture, and although the, the mountain was at a distance, Snow Peak Mountain, cloud covered it, I couldn't help but think, man, that's just, that's glorious. That's what we think of when we think of things that are stable, unmovable. We couldn't have, man couldn't have made that even if we wanted to. And that's the idea behind, behind glory. When Jesus hears, imagine Jesus in his glory, they're thinking, ticker tape parade, pomp and, pomp and circumstance, our king is here and we're going on a conquest. But Jesus begins by telling him, I'm not that kind of king. In fact, the kingship that I'm about to embrace will, will have me enduring a cross. And then he explains to them in this text what glory looks like. And he does that uh, starting in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so he gives an example from nature. He says a seed has to be buried in the ground and it has to decay before it gives birth to a plant. And he's liking it to himself in the same way that the son of man, Jesus, would be glorified and bear fruit through his death. And then he continues in verse five, applying the same paradox to us. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what he's doing is, and the reason why I call it a paradox, is the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. He's saying the only way for us to experience the, the, the abundant life, the life that God would give us, a life like Jesus experienced with his Father that he gained only through death, was if we see that the, uh, the way up is down, the first shall be last. The way into the kingdom of God is, is through death. That's a, a death to uh, ourself and a death to our sin. The best picture of, that we have of this is, is baptism. This is what baptism is supposed to display. And so a month ago, we baptized five people, and they um, told their stories, and they got into a body of water, and they were immersed in the water. And that was symbolic of their sins being cleansed and them being forgiven and then coming up to, to newness of life. And so baptism is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality that we are born dead in our sins. We're like Lazarus in the grave. There's nothing that he can do to, to do anything to, to help himself. He can't heal himself. He can't even participate in it. He's dead. When you're dead, you're dead. But Jesus comes and with the power of a command, 
he yells into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man comes to life. He, he, he unbinds himself from his, his grave clothes. He breathes the, the life that the Holy Spirit gives him. So Jesus is saying, there's no way we can live for the glory of God without experiencing this kind of life. And this life only comes through death. In verse 26, he says, glory looks like honor through suffering. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And so he's giving a, a, a message, of course, to these Greeks that had come seeking his presence. And he's saying several things. First, he's saying, you know, I don't know why you're here. You might be trying to climb the ladder of success. You're trying to make a name for yourself. Uh, get a title, all those things that we try to, to, to gain upward mobility. But he says, upward mobility in my kingdom doesn't come from you making yourself great. That's not the, the right way to live your life in my kingdom. He says, the way to gain honor and glory is through serving. It's through lowering yourself, not exaltation. The second thing he's, he's pointing out to them is anyone who is a true servant will follow. And several of you who are military in here, it's like uh, a soldier, sailor, airman following their commander and doing what that that sergeant or that commander tells them to do. The commander doing what the general tells them to do. It's like in in uh, chapter 11, where we chapter 10, where we hear a sheep follows his shepherd. And then in chapter 13, when we get to it next week, Jesus is going to give a personal example. He's going to take off his clothes, tie a towel around his body, and he's going to bend down and wash his disciples' nasty, stinky, dirty feet. Jesus also gives us two promises here. The first is, where I am, my servant will be also. And he's saying here, as servants and followers of Jesus, we gain the great reward and pleasure in this life of having Jesus' encouragement, of knowing him personally, gaining his approval, and being able to live in his power. And the, and, the, and the second promise is very close to it. He says, when we serve Jesus, the Father honors us. He gives one more picture of glory, and it's in verse 27 and 28. Now, my, now is my soul trouble, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven as I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I would offer you, these are some of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. And they're powerful because we see Jesus in a, in a, in a different light. We see him um, not necessarily in his divinity right here. We see him in his humanity. We see human Jesus experiencing our emotion agonizing. I would say Jesus is even experiencing a little bit of anxiety. Why is his soul troubled? Because he's going to the cross. Jesus knows that his, his death is imminent. He knows what's ahead of him. And I think more than just the physical pain that's involved, you know, there's been a lot of martyrs that have gone, um, suffered for the cause of Christ and have gone to uh, being burnt at the stake or being crucified and haven't uttered a word. Those are some strong people. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not worried about the physical pain. It's the spiritual consequences of what's going to happen to him. He's going to take on himself on the cross all the sins of the whole world. The, the father will turn his, his back 
his face on Jesus as he receives all of our sin on the cross. And Jesus knows that he's going to bear the full wrath of God for our sins. And so we see human Jesus here. So what so um, what we have to ask is, I mean, how could he do that? How could Jesus how did he have the resolve to do all that for us, knowing how not just painful it's going to be, but that he'd be separated from, from his father who he'd known and been in relationship for eternity? And I would have to say, as we've seen Jesus in this gospel, but through all the Bible, um, it's his lifelong submission to the will of the father. And, it's, and we see it in these words. The, the father's affirmation for Jesus is, Father, glorify your name. Jesus did all those things in his life that would glorify the Father. What does glory look like? It looks like I'm going to endure this pain and I'm going to endure the sacrifice of separation from you that I might simply fulfill your will. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a lot of back and forth going on here. At the beginning of John 12, 12, there's a parade. All these people are raising their hands, yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is Jesus has every right to receive the, the praise that comes from man in this, this moment. And very well, he could have said, all right, I am your king. Let's go overthrow the Romans. But what does he do? He completely dismisses the praise of men. He sets aside the glory of men that he might simply hear the voice of his father. I have glorified you. And I'll glorify you yet again. That voice booming down. This is God's affirmation. It's the same voice that Jesus heard at his baptism. This is my son who uh, whom I love, who I in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The voice of God, the father coming down on the son to encourage him in a time of need. This is a voice Jesus is longing to hear. He hears it. And that is what encourages him. Not give in to the the glory of man, but to instead receive the glory of God. My contention is that one of the things that prevents us from living life in the glory of God is our own desire for the glory of man. Think about all those ways that you. You think that celebrities are cool, you want to be like this person or you you succumb to 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 doing things because you're trying to please someone else else. Make yourself look good or or just make make somebody else happy. Um, if I took a poll and asked you, all right, so who won the Super Bowl last year? Who was on the time? Who was on the cover of Time? Um, who won the? What movie won the best Oscar? I mean, could you even tell me? It's only been a year, and I have no clue who won those things. Why? Because glory, the glory of man, is is absolutely fleeting. It's, it's here for a moment. It's gone the next. And Jesus recognized, you know, this isn't worth my time. Glory of man doesn't get me anywhere. I'm going to live for the glory of God. What Jesus shows us by his death on the cross is that he attains a glory that will never end. It's a glory that's shared and will be celebrated by more and more people each year. Just as Jesus proclaims in John 12, 32, verse 32. Very, this is a refrigerator verse. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is an articulation of the gospel. Jesus is saying, as you receive me in faith, 
You are saying, I, Jesus, I receive the atonement. You dying in my place for my sin. When Jesus says, all people will come to me as I, as I go to my death, he's, he's not saying anybody, lottie dottie, everybody. He's saying those to whom the Father has called, all, all tribes, all kinds of people. I, I'm, I'm opening the way for all people to come to me. And, and, and this word draw is very important. It means that we, there's nothing in us that, that pulls us toward God. God pulls us toward himself. It's like, it's like we're dead, laying on the ground. He grabs us by the bootstrap, and he's like dragging us along and, and brings us to life. There's one more group of people. It's the fourth group, and these are unbelieving Jews. Verse 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. (coughs) Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The key word here is the word believe. And, and really, John comments on three types of people and, and their semblance or, or lack thereof of belief. In verse 37 and 38, He says there are people who did not believe. And he says they did not believe in fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. And and so Isaiah presents this servant that would come and suffer for the people dying for them and would give them encouraging words. And yet the people rejected who the Messiah was and he rejected their words. And then he goes on to say there are people who could not believe in him, verse 39. And lastly, he says, there are people who should not believe in him, verse 41. And again, he quotes prophecy from Isaiah 6. Now, these are difficult verses. They're controversial verses. Some would read these verses and say, it appears that God has made it so that certain people must not, will not believe in him. And there's a lot in here. Firstly, Hebrews had no problem with this tension. So this was written to Hebrews, the Old Testament, Isaiah's words. They didn't have a problem with uh, understanding that God ordains everything that happens in the world, but there's also human responsibility. God is sovereign. He's going to decide what's going to, going to happen, but I also have a responsibility of doing what God said. And that's the tension that we have a hard time believing. We want things to be exact. Honestly, we just want to say we want to, we want cake and ice cream. We want to do what we want to do. We can't believe that the same God who sent Jesus to die would also make it impossible for his children to come, come to him and believe. And so this is how I would this is how I would interpret these verses. In spite of all the clear evidence that was present, that was presented to them, the Jewish nation would not believe in Jesus, even though they saw all kind of miracles and heard great words from him. And really likening the words of verse 35. Verse 35 says this. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While we have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And so 
Jesus presents God as light. Okay, the psalmist says, "The Lord is my light and my salvation." The uh, light is this ancient symbol for for who God is. Jesus presents Himself as the light, and what do the people do? They reject it, and they reject it for darkness. And here's the deal about about the offer of Jesus as light and our rejection of it. Once you reject Jesus, it's not that you are you are able to get a little bit of light after that. What you do is you welcome more darkness into your life. And this is what's going on with the religious people and those who did not believe. They were hardened to the message of God. And in the end, whether they meant to or not, they their hearts were even more hardened. You harden yourself to Jesus and you become more hardened. Now, the, the challenge for us today, for those who have heard and understood the gospel, but haven't committed ourselves to faith in Jesus, is, is simply this. When we have an encounter with Jesus and then reject him, it leads us to, to a hardened heart. Again, not a little bit of light in your heart, but the darkness that Jesus says would come and greater unbelief. All right, we're going to finish up in verse 44. Almost done. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who uh, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Come on up, Will. It's interesting. Jesus finishes his public ministry on these words. Um, we learn in the text, he stops talking. Jesus goes and hides himself. And what we'll see in the remaining 10 chapters of the Gospel of John is Jesus is hunkered down. He's, he's inside of buildings having dinner and talking. And he's only talking to those who would be his, his future apostles, those who would start the early church. And the words that he leaves us uh, remind us of all the things he's talked about in, in the Gospel of John, that I'm sent by God to be king over your lives, that I'm the son of a father. And when you see the son, you've seen the father, that I'm the light of the world so that you don't have to remain in darkness, that my words are the very words of God, that faith in me brings salvation. And lastly, and this is the note he ends, he ends on, to reject me is to face eternal judgment. He ends his words, his last words, on a word of judgment. And so John tells us, the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in six short days, Jesus would be nailed to a cross. He would die in our place for our sin. And so here's the invitation that Jesus gives as he concludes his public ministry. He's saying, like these Jews of the first century, these disciples, some who followed him and some who didn't, I'm inviting you to live for the glory of God. And here's the verdict. You spend eternity in the place you spend your entire life preparing for. Think about that. You spend eternity 
in the place where you will spend your entire life preparing for. And so here's the, here's the reflective question for us today. What am I preparing for right now? A- am I living for the glory of man or am I, am I trying to live for the glory of God? Philippians 2 has these great words to say. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, the glory of God the Father. Let me exhort you. We live our lives not to ourselves, but to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, would that we would heed these words and the words of Jesus would penetrate us, perhaps as they penetrated this first century crowd, that we would be people who don't go through the motions, that we wouldn't be the spectators who just wants to see Jesus, the man who raised Lazarus from the dead, but they would be like the, we would be like these Greeks. Really, they are a foretaste of who we are. This whole room is, is filled with perhaps non-Jews, those who have pressed through the crowd and they're seeking Jesus. Not the spectacle of Jesus, not to see what we can get from Jesus, but I want to I want to get near Jesus. I want to hear his words for myself. I want to be in the intimate proximity of his presence. I want his words to penetrate my being. And I and I offer for them to change me. God, make us people like that that would see this pressing hour in Jesus' life as an invitation to live not for the glory of man, but but for the glory of the one that really matters, for the glory of God. Lord, that's a hard task for us because we're, we're selfish people. Would you give us the wherewithal to trust you, to trust you more than we trust ourselves, to yield you more than we give in to our own desires and those around us, that we would glory not in what our culture says is glorious. The celebrities, the people that are on TV, the people that are in the magazines that look perfect, that's not glorious. Lord, you're glorious. Cause us to see glory in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.